Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that by it we are able to be made wise for salvation in Jesus. We pray you would humble our hearts. You would be working by your spirit now. You would be enabling our hearts to be receptive to your word. We pray particularly tonight that you would help us to forget the channel through which you are teaching that we might see only Christ and so love and honour and adore him alone. And we ask these things for his name's sake. Amen. Many summers ago, I was on a school adventure camp. I was 16 years old. It's very cocky. One of the activities on this summer camp was abseiling. Can you put your hand up if you've heard of abseiling before? Let me just see how many... Okay, quite a few. Good, good. Okay, abseiling. For those who aren't sure what it is, you have to go up a, a large, usually wooden tower. can be anything between 20, 40 feet. Climb all the way up. Uh, you put a harness on, you get some ropes together, and you basically get to the edge of this tall tower, and you descend off it, and then walk down the edge at a 90 degree angle. Uh, and this was one of the uh, fun activities that we had on this adventure camp all those years ago. Uh, and people knew it was on the timetable, it was coming up, it was a bit of a test of nerves. And so the evening before, uh, I was with a group of friends, and they said, Hey, Tim, are you looking forward to the abseiling? Yeah, they knew this was going to divide people. It would be uh, the ones that like this crazy stuff, they'd be all excited, and the ones that don't would be pretty scared. Uh, so they asked me, Tim, how are you going to handle it? Are you looking forward to abseiling? And uh, I thought, well, hang on, I've got, I've got a reputation to uphold. I've got to be cool. So I said very foolishly before them, yeah, I can't wait. It's going to be great fun. Now, I'll probably do it a few times, go up and down, up and down. Maybe I'll start by going backwards, and then I'll go forwards facing the ground. Maybe I'll free fall, maybe, you know, if the instructors let me, whether I'll use the rope or not, and all that kind of thing. I made loads of stupid posts in front of them. I thought, oh, wow, Tim's so cool. And, of course, I foolishly forgot that the morning would come, and I would have to make good on all these ridiculous claims. So the morning did come, and I got to the top of the abseiling tower, uh, and um, the person in front of me, he was just about to go over the edge, and I was just waiting, and I just peered over, looked all the way down, and, well, my legs turned to jelly, my knees buckled, and I was the only one in a class of 40 boys and girls who, in the end, couldn't bring myself to go over the edge. I didn't abseil at all. It was humiliating. All of those great boasts that I had made about my capabilities, my nerves of steel, but I failed to live them out, to make them a reality in front of my peers. The Corinthian church to whom Paul is writing certainly had a very high view of themselves in the spiritual circles. They're very proud of their gifts, as we will see later in this letter. They saw themselves as the, the model church, the holy of holies. They were very proud of their vibrancy, their spiritual sophistication. Consider themselves to be number one super-Christians. And they weren't. Uh, Paul gives us their true spiritual situation and condition in verses 1 to 4. Under the guidance of the Spirit, Paul starts in this chapter by saying to this church, 3 verse 1, But I, brothers, 
could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. It would have been a very bitter pill for Corinthians to swallow. They thought they were really mature. They were grown up. Yet actually they were just infants in Christ. Paul still considered them in Christ, considered them fellow brothers and sisters with him, united to Christ, forgiven through his blood, same as Paul. But in terms of their spiritual maturity, they were still in nappies. See how Paul continues in verse 2. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now you are not yet ready. When Paul first ministered the gospel in his travels to Corinth, he, he kept things fairly simple. You know, much like we normally do when we are witnessing to our non-Christian friends. When we're sharing the gospel with them, we don't normally start with subjects like election or predestination or God as Trinity, uh, unless the situation calls for it. They ask us about those things. But the hope is that as people come to faith in Christ, they're not going to just stay as baby Christians. They will continue to grow up more and more in their knowledge and likeness of Christ, uh, living more wisely and more authentically with Jesus as Lord, as the days and months and years go by. And yet Paul couldn't see any of that genuine spiritual growth in the Corinthian church. They had been in Christ for some time. People think, historians think, it was about ten years between Paul first witnessing the gospel to them and him writing this letter to them. Ten years. And he has to say to them at the end of verse 2, and even now you are not yet ready. You're not ready for further teaching. You're not ready for the food that is meant for the mature. And why? We have that in verse 3. He says they are still of the flesh. They're still acting like a bunch of unsaved, unholy people. You know, if you're not one of God's holy people, one could understand why you wouldn't want to live a holy life. If you don't know anything of God's love that paid the awful price of the cross to deal with your sin so that you might be saved from hell and know the God that made you, if you don't really appreciate any of that, well then one could understand why you would fail to love others as God has loved us. But Paul knew that he was not addressing those kind of people. This is God's church. These are the holy ones brought back from sin by the blood of Christ. And he wants the Corinthians to start living like it. There's one glaring area where they were failing. Where they were acting in a really unholy way. It was in their division. Their disunity. Their rampant factionalism. There were groups in the church battling not for the gospel, uh, not for sharing the truth in love, but purely out of self-interest over petty squabbles Trivial matters. See what Paul says in the rest of verses 3 and 4. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, then another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? In other words, are you not just acting like a bunch of non-Christians, you know, who belong to any other club, fraternity, or political party? There's one guy, he has his supporters. There's another guy, he has his supporters. And whoever gets the most support wins. 
And the winning party looks down on the losing party. Well, it might work for the politics of this world, but Paul knows that the idolizing of leaders leading to these silly factions, well, that was an attitude that had no place in the church. That was a practice that was incredibly perverse for those who had received Christ. Paul's going to show us why in the rest of this chapter. Why is it so perverse to view church leaders in the way that we should view Christ and so follow them and create division? Abandoning unity for the sake of being a groupie to a respected pastor. Uh, Paul gives us two correctives and then his conclusion. And the first correction is in verses 5 to 9. God, not men, grows his church. God, not men, grows his church. Verse 5. Paul starts, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Uh, Last month, Melissa, my wife, got a message from her kaima, her godmother, who lives in Singapore. Uh, And she's a very wealthy lady who currently owns a fully furnished apartment down in Malacca. But business hasn't been great lately. She hasn't been able to get a tenant in for quite a while. So she's decided to sell the place. And out of her incredible generosity, she called Melissa and said, you can have all the furnishings. You you, you can strip the lot. You take it all. Uh, I'm just going to sell the apartment unfurnished now. So, So we're getting a new sofa. Uh, a new TV, a new bed, a new fridge freezer, lots of more stuff. It's great. We're very thankful. But to actually get to all of this stuff that is being given to us, uh, well, we have to go to the condo. Uh, and Melissa's Kaima, her godmother, she lives in Singapore, so she can't let us in. So she had to arrange for an agent to be, as it were, the gatekeeper, to, to let us into the place, take us around, so we could get access to all of this great stuff. So we went down to Malacca, we met this agent that Kaima had arranged, that Kaima had actually paid to meet us. Uh, and she was a very friendly woman. He let us in, gave us a tour around the whole apartment. He explained how we might transport all of these items all the way back up to KL. Uh, I, I looked around, I saw in the lounge there was the 42-inch TV on the wall. I took that there and then. There was no way that was going to stay in Malacca for a few weeks. So who should... Melissa and I thank for all of these new furnishings that we're receiving as a gift. Do do we thank Melissa's Kaima, her godmother, or do we thank the uh, the agent who led us into the condo? It's a silly question, isn't it? Of course, we we did say thank you to the agent for her cooperation, for doing her job well. That, That was just a polite thing to do. But we didn't think for a minute that she was the one who who deserved the real thank you for all that stuff we were now receiving. You know, she was just an instrument doing her job so that we could get to all of that lovely new stuff. So we saved our biggest thanks for Melissa's Kaima, who had given us all those things. And it's very much like that for us as a church as well. You know, the fact that God in his grace, as we look at the church in Corinth, their situation, he appointed Paul and he appointed Apollos and used them to get his gospel to the Corinthians. But that doesn't make them the important ones. The Corinthians weren't to worship Paul and Apollos as if new life, forgiveness of sins, the promise of living with and for God forever or 
as if those things came from Paul and Apollos. No, they were ultimately to give thanks to God who had used Apollos and Paul to bring them this wonderful news. He had brought the Corinthians to faith in Christ through the message Paul and Apollos carried. God in his mercy had granted them eternal life in Christ. And so he was the one who was to be most esteemed, honoured and cherished. Now, Paul does speak of his own work here for the Corinthians. We look in verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. You know, where does church growth really come from? How do we actually fundamentally grow as a people under God? It comes from God, by his grace. Nothing else and no one else. Paul planted the church in Corinth. Apollos continued to disciple them. But in the end, they said, no, no, give God the glory. He is the one who is at work here to bring about the fruit of his gospel. We're just the servants. We're just the workers. They weren't that important. Paul considers himself nothing, actually, compared to God who gives growth. They they had their duty. God had given them an important role to play, just like that agent that led us into Kaimar's apartment in Malacca. And they would be rewarded for their faithful labor. For their faithful labor. Have a look in verse 8. Paul says, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Actually, the word there, wages, is reward. Will receive his reward according to his labor. You know, notice, God, God doesn't say in his word, he will reward his gospel ministers for their success. It's not the criteria for reward here. It's not like some kind of tit-for-tat system where a pastor's number of converts or, or number of people following their blog or, or the number of people who download their sermons determines their treasure in heaven, their eternal riches. No, God's gospel servants are rewarded for the faithfulness of their labor. For the faithfulness of their labor. Because God is the one who gives the growth as his gospel is proclaimed. You know, for us at SMAC, we, we should pray for growth. We should plan for growth. We must train for growth and work toward it in a gospel-centered and Christ-like manner. And if we labor faithfully as a church, we will be rewarded. Whether or not God brings about the fruit of growth as a result of that ministry. Leaders, whether you be a growth group leader, meeting out with someone one-to-one, or a pastor, having any kind of pastoral responsibility over others. Think faithfulness, not success. Faithfulness, not success. For all of us, we've got to be careful to avoid creating factions and cliques around people who have, in faithfulness to God, influenced us for the sake of the gospel. You know, the only one who really is worthy to be followed and worshipped is God himself through his Son. Not your church leaders, through whom God has graciously worked and gifted and empowered. Paul still counted it a great honour to be a servant of the gospel, to be a leader of God's church. It's it's an incredibly honourable thing. See how he describes himself in verse 9. We are God's fellow workers 
you know, law firms here in KL, they might have powerful partners at the top, but none of them can boast of having God working at their firm. Paul knew he was a partner in the most significant work in human history. The proclamation and spread of the gospel. The words of eternal life, bringing eternal hope to this world broken in sin and death and facing eternal judgment. As servants of the gospel, particularly for us leaders in our various capacities, we have that wonderful duty of making Christ known. Incredible privilege. God should use us, sinful, unworthy people, as his instruments. Consider us his fellow workers, fellow partners, as he grows his church by his gospel. But as the Spider-Man motto goes, with great power and great privilege comes great responsibility. Our gospel ministry is not a game. It's not something to be taken lightly, to be seen frivolously. Paul reminds us of what he is responsible for under God as his fellow worker in verse 9b. See how he describes the church in Corinth. You are God's field. You are God's building. Two descriptions here of the church. Firstly, a field. Probably hinting at the diversity of gospel ministry that God gives different types of workers to work in the field. Different types of leaders working to sustain the church with different talents, and yet it's still got God's name all over it. It's God's field, no one else's. And then God's church is also described as this building. Further down in verse 16, we're told this building is actually God's temple. We as a church are the temple of God. As a congregation, when we meet in the name of Christ, around his word, It is a sacred activity, what we're doing here. Because God is among us. It doesn't matter what kind of building we're meeting in. We could be in a shop lot, a hotel, somebody's condo. It's not the building that's special. It's not the building that's sacred. You are. We are. In Christ, we are God's holy people who have the Spirit dwelling within us. Together, we become a holy temple where God dwells, a temple that God cares greatly for. And Paul reminds the Corinthians of the only judgment that will really matter at the end of the day in terms of how this temple is built will be God's judgment, not man's. It will be God's. It's the second correction. God, not men, judges his church, ultimately. It's God, not men. Verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Paul's already described himself as a God's fellow worker serving the church, God's temple in whom his spirit dwells, and now he's going to tell us a bit more about his specific role in that work. As apostle to the Gentiles, he was like this master builder. He laid the original foundation on which God would continue to build particularly his Gentile, his non-Jewish church. Not to say the Jews aren't part of the church as well, but that was Paul's priority. And that foundation, as Paul has already made abundantly clear in this letter, is Jesus Christ and his gospel, nothing else. 
reminds us in verse 11. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus alone, as God's Son, has come and dwelt among us and died and risen so that sinners like us might be reconciled to God by his blood counted as righteous and holy before him, though we are not. Christ alone has done that. No other man. He is the only reason we can be counted as the church of God here tonight. Through faith in Christ and his work. And that is how God establishes and grows his people, his church, by that gospel. The immature leaders at Corinth, they were right about Paul in one sense, although they meant it as a a derogatory term. They blamed him, saying, hey, you're just preaching Christ crucified all the time. You're just preaching Christ crucified. That's exactly what Paul wanted to do. He wanted to lay that legitimate foundation for the church of God. And he warns those other leaders, other preachers and teachers, both in Corinth and today, be careful, be careful. See in verse 10, halfway through, let each one take care how he builds upon it. If you change the foundation of God's church, then no matter how wise your teaching might sound, no matter how many people you captivate, no matter how many disciples you win to your particular ministry, if it's detached from the gospel, then whatever you're building, it's not Christ's church. It's not the church of God. The trouble is that many ministries which are detached which are not founded on the gospel, look so impressive today in the world's eyes by the world's measures of success. Preachers promoting worldly wisdom, giving influential, attractive, motivational messages. Here's how you can have the best finances. Here's how you can have the best marriage, the best relationships, the best lifestyle. Here's how you can have your very best life now. Come to my Jesus. You find me a self-centered sinner who wouldn't find that attractive. So they draw crowds of thousands and thousands to themselves. They generate a huge following, massive congregations. Signed book deals, the works. And people say, well, you know, clearly God is with them. Look at all those people. Look at all of that success. And yet God tells us in his word, no leader is going to be approved ultimately on the basis of worldly signs of success. No, God is going to judge the leaders of his church by the nature of their work, their labor, and its true foundation. That's what Paul says about this final judgment in verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, Precious stones, wood, hay, straw, what each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. What sort of work, not success, what sort of work each has done. Gold, silver, precious stones, the materials Israel used in the building of the physical temple before Christ. And that was fitting. You know, this was God's temple, built to the glory of his name. It's appropriate to be using these fine materials. But they also have something else in common. Gold, silver, precious stones. If you put them under a blowtorch, they won't burn up. 
they will survive. They will be refined, in fact. Unlike the other elements that Paul mentions here, these other materials, wood, hay, straw. You ever seen a barn on fire? They would all go up in smoke the second a flame touches them. Just gone. Like that. The true quality of any Christian ministry will be revealed on the final day, this day, when God judges it, discloses it for what it is, reveals its true foundation, as fire judges gold, silver, wood, hay. Leaders who are faithful to the gospel, who built their ministries on Paul's message of Christ crucified, who pointed those they served to Jesus and promoted love and worship of him, repentance of sin, and trust in Christ, well, they will be rewarded, no matter how little or much fruit God has produced through them, no matter how great their congregation is in size. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Jesus will say to such faithful gospel ministers, well done, good and faithful servant. But for those whose ministries had little to do with the real Jesus, for those who pointed more to themselves than to him, who had churches full of their own disciples, but not those of Jesus, for those whose message was what their hearers wanted to hear, be rich, be prosperous, be healthy, but not the gospel of Christ, not come and die and live for him, not genuine repentance and faith, well, their labor will be shown for what it is as well. The foundation will be revealed. You know, the church, the youth ministry, the Sunday school, the stadium rallies that look so impressive now by the world's standards. And yet if that growth and all that success is produced by something other than the faithful preaching of Christ crucified, it won't survive that judgment. It will perish like wood, hay, straw under the fire of God's judgment because it was founded on worldly wisdom not the gospel of salvation. Now, if those leaders who foolishly pointed themselves to other things other than Christ, if they still belong to him, they will be saved for eternity. But they won't receive any warm words from Christ as they enter into his presence on that final day. See how Paul describes their state in verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You know, that their entrance into heaven will be like someone leaking, leaping from a burning building the second before it collapses. A building they were responsible for under God. And yet there will be some, tragically, who face an even greater judgment and condemnation than that. In verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You know, for some leaders whose teaching was so full of falsehood that it actually led to the spiritual destruction of those they were ministering to, it caused those who were once professing Christ to fall away from him, to become distracted by other false saviors, putting your security in other things, money, health, comfort, pleasure, success, vain things, the list goes on. For those who actively denied the gospel and destroyed the faith of some by doing so, God will destroy them. 
Jesus will say to such false teachers, depart from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. Because they will have been complicit in the destruction of those they were supposed to pastor for Christ. And God cares deeply for his church, his people, his holy temple. Brothers and sisters, jealousy, strife, cliques born out of a love of human personality have serious potential to harm the people of God, to harm us. Focusing on, oh, which leader is the most eloquent? Uh, Which one teaches more of what I want to hear? Which one has the more style, the more attractive words, the better vocabulary? Just leads to this nonsense. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. And at the end of the day, Paul, Apollos, self-confessed servants, accountable to God, not men, for their ministry on Christ's behalf. They didn't want to be adored. They hated the idea of being loved more than the Jesus that they preached. So leaders, again, if we're conducting our ministries faithfully here at SMAC or wherever else, then we should feel exactly the same way. The only commendation we should be ultimately interested in is the one that God will grant, the one that glorifies him. For all of us as a church, we need to be really concerned that our leaders are magnifying Christ, not themselves. They're promoting Christ crucified, God's wisdom, not the wisdom of this world that is passing away. And it's that wisdom of the world that Paul brings back into view as he concludes these verses. He comes to his conclusion, do not boast in men. Do not boast in men. Verses 18 to 23. Come with me to verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Paul says, just stop deceiving yourselves. Don't go and adopt worldly wisdom as a Christian and use that worldly worldly wisdom to view the church, to view its leaders, and think you will do no damage as a result. As you move further and further away from unity in the gospel, God's wisdom, Christ crucified, and then focus instead more and more on the style or personality of your leaders. God's servants. It's just such foolishness to God. All of what the world prizes, power, prestige, popularity, fame. And Paul has made it so clear already in this letter. God displays his wisdom through the cross in wretched weakness as far as the world is concerned. A weakness through which he achieves eternal salvation for sinners like us, bringing the world's wisdom and strength to absolutely nothing. You see how Paul goes on, verse 19, for the the wisdom of this world is folly with God. It's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, they are futile. I saw a striking example of this a few years ago. I remember watching a debate being held in America between the infamous atheist, Richard Dawkins, and a Christian university professor that he actually worked on the staff with, uh, John Lennox. They both taught at one point at Oxford University in the UK. And it was getting towards the end of this debate about is belief in God reasonable? And Richard and John, they were given about two minutes to make their final statements to the audience. And John Lennox... The Christian apologist, he used this opportunity to speak about the resurrection of Jesus. 
how the proof for the God of the Bible and the God of Christianity ultimately rests on that one great historical event. As soon as he had explained that, Richard Dawkins turned round and fired back at him with these words. <sighs> so now we come down to the resurrection of Jesus. It's so petty. It's so trivial. It's so local. It's so earthbound. It's so unworthy of the universe in which we live. Richard saw the message of Christ crucified as such a small, petty, insignificant side note in human history. And yet, friends, even that is part of God's incredible wisdom, as Paul says here. He, he quotes from two verses in the Old Testament. Verse 19, he catches the wise and their craftiness. That's from Job. Verse 20, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They are futile. Futile, that's from our Old Testament reading in Psalm 94. And both these passages are about God's judgment on those who see themselves as wise as they reject God's wisdom through his gospel, as being petty and insignificant. For such people, the gospel doesn't mean rescue, it tragically means judgment. Because as the world rejects Christ as foolishness according to its own wisdom, it forsakes the only way to know and enjoy the God it was made to know again, the God they were created to enjoy. And in the line of all of this, Paul tells the Corinthians, stop adopting this worldly wisdom. Look at what it's doing to the world. Do you want to bring that into the church? You think you're wise in this way, become a fool as far as the world is concerned. Stop thinking that for something to be truly impressive and spiritual, it's got to be clever and powerful and stylish, according to the world's wisdom. Especially in the way you view your leaders. These servants of God, empowered by God to fulfill his ministry to them. And Paul just rounds it off in this conclusion in verse 21. So let no one boast in men. Church, be careful how you relate to your leaders in Christ. Don't put us on a pedestal or treat us any differently from any brother or sister in Christ that you know. I'm not saying it's wrong to thank those who are serving you in Christian ministry or to receive thanks from those that you are serving. But we must be really careful. Satan is no fool. He can use the best intention of compliments to promote pride, competition and division in our church. You know, one area where I think we need to be particularly careful, I've seen it cropping up uh, in Malaysia in general and even a few instances in Smack of late. It's the, it's the complimenting of particular church workers for their work using public forums. Facebook, Twitter, we're living in the age of communication where you can type something and a million people can see it in a minute. Comments can be viewed by many of us. And although those comments are well-intentioned and seem to be signs of encouragement, we have got to be so careful not to be unwittingly promoting a celebrity culture here at SMAC. You know, for the sake of the pastoral team here, Andrew, Kenneth, Marianne, and others, we know we're far from perfect. We have prideful hearts. For the sake of us, of, of us all, as a congregation living for Christ and not for men. 
Of course, the other danger we must avoid is the opposite. It's then looking down on other church leaders and those that they're associated with because they don't quite work for us. Just because we haven't seen quite eye to eye with them in the past, not on anything as fundamental as the gospel, but just some other trivial matter. Friends, let's count our unity in Christ as far greater than our own petty differences. Mustn't deny him in the way we relate to one another and see one another. Paul says loud and clear, do not boast in men. And he ends with this great positive motivation to refocus our attention where our boasting is to be placed. On Christ and his heavenly Father. All things are yours, verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. You are Christ's and Christ is God's. You see, the truth is that uh, the church in Corinth and we today have received far more than the petty things that they were boasting about and causing division over. You know, God had worked to bring them every blessing worth having, not through a particular man but through the gospel, through faith in Christ. Because as they now belonged to Jesus, well, verse 23, you are Christ, so they belonged to the one who had received authority over everything. And in that sense, all that Jesus had received was theirs as well. Jesus, the Lord of our world, the Lord of their lives, even their deaths, the Lord of their present, the Lord of their future, who they could trust would be working in all things for their best interest to grow in love and maturity in him. He had used Paul, he had used Apollos, he had used Cephas to bring them the gospel in the first place. He was controlling both their present and their future according to his perfect will. Even in death, he was their Lord who had conquered death for them. Instead of boasting in mere church leaders, Paul says boast in Christ, their true head, through whom God has granted every blessing worth receiving. And friends, we belong to Jesus as a church here tonight. We must continue to focus on and develop into his likeness and no one else's. We must reject every temptation to jealousy, to strife, to factionalism on the basis of petty squabbles that are far below the gospel. And instead, speaking the truth in love, we are always to find our unity in Jesus and him crucified for us. We must stake our unity on the gospel and nothing else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as your church you have, in your mercy and grace, called us into the fellowship of your Son. And we pray that we would live lives worthy of that, both individually and as your people together here at Snack. Help us to love and honour one another in a way that is honouring to Christ. Help us to be wise to see division if it is coming a mile away and to avoid it and rather stake our unity on the gospel and nothing else.
We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.